Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we step outside of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm very, very happy to be sitting here with Jim Gaffigan. He is a Grammy-nominated comedian and the New York Times best-selling author of Dad is Fat and Other Books. And he's about to launch the second season of his semi-fictitious TV show, The Jim Gaffigan Show, which premieres with two episodes on Sunday, June 19th on TV Land. Welcome to Think Again, Jim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off just kind of asking you about courage, right? Like, a lot okay. of people in the world seem to be... I would say most people in most industries seem to be walking around with various kinds of masks on, trying mm -hmm. to protect themselves from looking stupid. And in your work, you go to the land of totally grotesque, over-the-top kind of all of the worst possible insecurities and reflections that the world might have on you, you put them out there and like maybe exaggerate them as well. Do you feel that that makes you stronger over time? Does that help you deal with those demons? Is it free therapy? I mean, your work is hilariously funny, but I'm, I, I'm interested in your perspective yeah. on, on going out raw like that into I the think, world. I think, uh, well, I think there's one aspect of courage that it's not a decision where you embrace courage and then you're courageous. Like, I think I was courageous to try stand-up comedy. Right. But there has to be numerous moments where I go, all right, now I'm going to be courageous and reveal this about myself. But that being said, I feel as though there's... Sometimes we attribute courageous behavior to a personality trait. Right. So there are some people that are outspoken and Donald Trump. Yeah, and we <laughs> and we think they're courageous. Right. So I, I feel like sometimes with comedy people are like, that's brave. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that person is being maybe they're being brave. Right. Or they're manipulating the zeitgeist that we exist in for their benefit. In order to look brave and get yes. kind of PR and to props get, out of that. Or to get a Huffington Post article. Right, right. And so, I mean, but they might not be consciously doing that, but I think that as a comedian, it should be, it's more important to be funny. Right. Now, you, you probably need some bravery in going about being funny. I think that's some of, like, even silly funny there takes a bravery like you look at will ferrell there's a lot of bravery there yeah yeah he's doing something that could fall on its face but there's a bravery in that silliness that he does right and i think that's what we enjoy about it also i mean i think it's you know the, the, your intention obviously is to be funny which you are but it, it also is empowering, I think, or freeing for other people to watch somebody go up there and talk directly about things that most people are afraid to admit that they even feel, you know? Right, yeah, I think, <laughs> well, it's also liberating because I think that we can feel all these things all the time. Right. Like the whole concept, like we're all gonna die, but we don't really wanna think about it. 
But it is funny for someone like George Carlin to talk, like he has this chunk on suicide, which is brilliant. But it's also, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about the fact that right now someone is getting ready to kill themselves, which is a line from his material. So, yeah, I think, but also, I personally think comedians get a lot of credit and criticism for what they would do anyway. So, in other words, right. people might credit me for being a clean comedian. But, you know, it hasn't been necessary for us to curse in this portion of the podcast. No, we're going to have I don't get, we're I don't, gonna have to curse a lot. I don't get any credit for being clean. He was, you know what? He's really good. In the po- <laughs> he was clean in the podcast. You know, it's strange. Yeah. It's not like we live in such a cursing-filled world. Well, I mean, it is a weird thing in comedy. And, like, we're just used to for whatever reason. And my understanding yeah. is that, like, early in your career, like, your producers or whatever were pressuring you to curse. Yes. You yes. actually had to add cursing into yeah. an album. Is that right? Like, Yeah, there or- was. <laughs> yeah, they, they were like, you know what? You might want to curse some more. It'll have a greater appeal with teenagers. Yeah. And so I was like, uh, all right. I added some curse words, but it wasn't. And on the other side, it's not as if I didn't have some curse words when I first started, but I mostly got rid of them because I didn't feel like it was that creative right. to just say fuck. Right. You know what I mean? Like, And I'd have to remove it for an appearance on Conan or Letterman anyway. And then I just realized, oh, I didn't even finish writing the joke. But then again, it's... Cursing for Chris Rock is incredibly authentic, so I wouldn't ask him to not curse. Right. Hopefully you're not sitting there, well, he had two curse words. (laughs) You know, it's like people really, I mean, being from the Midwest and coming to New York, when I first got a job in advertising, I was shocked how much people were cursing. I was like, aren't we supposed to be creative here? And people were going, motherfucking bullshit, goddamn. And you're like, all right. So, but culturally, it's a different environment. You know, you live in a city. You know, I curse in everyday life, but if I'm talking about fried chicken, it's not necessary. No. To say, this is fucking good chicken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my mother's, you know, opinion on cursing was always kind of similar to what you're talking about in terms of like, you can do better than that. You can come up with something more interesting. And like, yeah. as I've grown older, Honestly, I just don't care. Like a lot of the yeah. hip hop music I listen to, oh, yeah. they're cursing, and and, but I'm that's not, and I'm not like, yeah, it's authentic. Yeah. And but I'm not like, why couldn't you come up with no, a no, clever no. word at that moment? You know? No, no, no. It's like, excuse me, little John. Um, is it little John or Lil John? No, but I also feel, and it's interesting because it goes back to the bravery thing, having young children. Quick story on the cursing. Totally. Is my 10-year-old son was uh, cursing, and I said to him, I go, look, I don't care if you curse. I really don't. You can curse around me. But if you curse at school, you're going to get in trouble. So don't curse at school, but feel like you can curse around me. And what happened is all he did was curse around me. <laughs> and then he would curse around me while other people were present. So it was just like, all right, fine, no cursing. <laughs> like I tried so to. Then have the other this. people are like, "What is wrong with Jim that he's right. allowing yes. his kid to be?" So it's like, like a- it just comes down to like, you know, all right, fine, just don't curse now. <laughs> I'm dealing with this as well. I have an yeah. eight-year-old son, 
and you know we're, we listen to the soundtrack of Hamilton the musical yeah. and I'm like trying to turn the radio down at certain yeah. moments and you know and I just finally had a conversation he's a smart kid he's yeah. a verbal kid I finally was like look I don't really understand what it is about these words maybe because they're like on the cusp of violence or something but we like regulate them you know they're not yeah. okay everywhere but I want you to be able to listen to some things that are good yeah. and trust that you're not going to run out in the street and start cursing. Can I? Can we do that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, but we'll see. I mean, who knows? Right. It may come back to bite me in the ass. But, but the bravery <laughs> thing is, I mean, I don't know if you encounter this with your, because being around children and, you know, when you're like, when you've been on the planet for eight years, there's a lot more bravery that you have to engage in than when you're in your 30s or 40s. Oh yeah, just getting on the school bus. I mean, the there's a like, lot of bravery. Yeah. You have to sit there and go, I'm the brand new experience here. <laughs> so encouraging my children to be brave has really, you know, to not be a hypocrite, I have to be brave. Right. So the parenting thing is weird. It's yeah. very strange. I imagine, I mean, I, I have, Another thing that people always bring up about you, of course, is that you have a lot of kids. You have five now? I have five. And you, you talk about it in your routines. Yeah. And to judge by the, your stand-up, it's like your home life is this constant, like, beleaguered state of exhaustion sort of thing. But I'm sure that's yeah. not really it, the Well, case it there. is. It is in a lot of ways. <laughs> but it's... Like, there's way more people that have five kids than make a living going on stage, gaining right. the approval of strangers. So being a parent of five, you know, it's chaos, but, because it is chaos. It's a chaos that enriches your life. But I think <laughs> it's, it's impossible to articulate it, right. the benefits, without it sounding like you're trying to sell some pyramids lifestyle or something yeah, you know what i mean like it's great i don't get sleep it's great i'm yeah. changing diapers at five in the morning so uh, the the strange uh, you know like the parenting thing yeah so we should let the audience know yeah. like you guys if you want to have five kids feel free but you're not jim is yeah, not proselytizing here no you're not required no. to do that no it's very you know the five kids and the clean comedy <laughs> yeah they, they keep coming up right? it's like I mean, people it's like, are like five kids clean comedy <laughs> are you a nominee for the republican party you know and it's just like a part it, of that i i i, I want to say and you know you 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 also joke like in your new series there's stuff about kind of a sense of alienation of the Midwestern culture yes. to New York and like people being like, you're from, no one knows where yeah, you're yeah, from, yeah, like yeah. Wisconsin or yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I also didn't realize I was Midwestern until I got here. <laughs> like when I was growing up, I was like this, uh, there's been some misunderstanding. I'm not supposed <laughs> to be going to parties in high school sitting on bales of hay. Which, I, I mean, I didn't do every night. That happened. There was actual hay. There was a night in <laughs> high school where I was sitting on a bale of hay. And I was like, we're actually at a party in Indiana where we're sitting on a bale of hay. And there was actually, an, you know, I went to parties in trailer parks, which seemed foreign to New Yorkers. But it wasn't, it wasn't that odd. Yeah, well, I think I, that's the really interesting thing is that, like, these external aspects of our culture or whatever that like 
seem so shocking or alienating or surprising and end up can end up being the only three things that people keep talking about yeah. are they're they matter but they don't matter you know no, they don't <laughs> yeah it's content right right it's similar it goes back to the you know comedians just want to be known as funny people can add female they can add <laughs> right. male they can add african american all these things but in the end it's funny right. funny or not funny People are not going to a theater to watch me do stand-up because I'm not cursing. <laughs> They're right. not going because I'm not cursing. Right. They're going because it's funny, hopefully. It is you funny, know? and that's why you're you're there with the other folks, you know, yeah. Louis C.K. and you know you're you're one of those guys, you know, like, yeah. and and gals. And um, gals. <laughs> um, so I think now let's get to the second portion okay. of the show where you and I are in the same boat. We're going to watch three surprise interview clips on any possible subject. This is just about me talking out my ass. This right? is that's exactly what it okay. is. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay, this is Sean Willens, who's an American historian, and he's talking about Donald Trump's crisis presidency. Would the GOP suspend the Constitution? Every time you get one of these movements, and they've been, again, they've occurred before in American history, there's always an argument that somehow somebody has taken America away from Americans and um, we're going to try to bring it back, take it back from them, and restore what was. Um, that happened with the Federalists in 1800, about the naturalized, unnaturalized immigrants. It happened in the 1850s with Irish and German Catholic immigrants. And it's happening now. Um, something terrible has been taken away, and they're trying to bring it back. It's appealing to people's uh, fears. They're appealing to people's sense that they, are no, long they no longer count. Um, but we've seen that before as well. I mean, this is no there's nothing new about any of this. Interestingly, it's usually a sign, or it's been a sign, of a political party that's about to crack up. And that certainly happened in 1800, it happened in the 1850s. In the 1920s and 30s, the, the old guard in the Republican Party that brought back the economics that led to the Great Depression, they too were being buoyed up by a resurgence of nativism, which led to a law in 1924 that grossly uh, restricted um, uh, immigration from abroad. In all three cases, the parties either collapsed entirely or they were marginalized. The Republicans didn't elect a president from Franklin Delano Roosevelt coming in in 1932 until 30 years later. The president they elected in 1952, Dwight Eisenhower, basically ratified a New Deal consensus. So this great, making America great again usually means that a party is about to get, get under, you know, fall under great pressure. It's, it's going to, if not collapse entirely, at least it's going to disintegrate or be pushed to the margins. There's something, you know, I have a couple things on Trump. One is I tend to be nervous about the group think of people that don't like Trump, which That is, is a refreshing and novel opinion I have not heard. Is yeah, that um, I don't like Trump, <laughs> but I get worried that we are, instead of explaining to people that like Trump what's wrong with it. Right. We'd rather be right, and we'd rather say, you're an idiot. Yeah. Which is what I think happened when John Kerry ran against George Bush. People with different opinions are very valid, and um, what we see is so apparent about Trump. Right. 
uh, we're being dismissive to the fact that there's things appealing about Trump. Right. So someone that does support Trump, like I work on a, on this show that uh, I want everyone to watch, but... Yes, the Jim Gaffigan show, second season starting soon. It is really funny. And you've seen it. I have seen it, and, but I can't say anything about but, it. Yeah. But the, the thing is, is that of the cast and crew, no one admitted to voting or being interested in Trump. No one admitted to it. But someone might must be. Of course. Yeah. Of <laughs> course. Statistically, right? You know? <laughs> and so, therefore, it makes me think that there's an absence of dialogue surrounding this. So, yeah. this mentality, this mob mentality sure. of just saying, you're an idiot, you're wrong, and you're, you're invalidated. Yeah, that's pretty universal to humans yeah. if they're not yeah. really careful about it because we are sort of pack animals and we want to make yeah. sure that we're cool and, yeah. and everything's fine and these are, this is my tribe and you know, yeah. if the others come, we can win you know, or yeah. whatever. But, but um, I totally agree with you that it is dangerous to entirely, to dismiss people entirely and I feel like that is what leads to, I mean, also doing things like carpet bombing the Middle East, but, but that is one thing that leads to radicalization. And, you know, dismissing people and their worldviews entirely is one thing that leads to people becoming increasingly radicalized to the point yes. where they're like, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. Screw you. Like, right. You know, it's like, by the way, <laughs> yeah. those people like in, I believe it was San Jose, that were attacking those Trump supporters, I watched that and I was like, oh my gosh, don't you realize that people that were on the fence are now for Trump because of that? Right. Because people were attacking these people for having a different opinion. I mean, look, Fox News, MSNBC, you know, they're two different Six opinions. Six of one, half dozen the other. Right, yeah, and, yeah. and by the way, I enjoy news. I enjoy <laughs> opinions. I enjoy Chris Matthews. I enjoy Greta Van Susteren. <laughs> I enjoy it. But I also think that it's pretty impossible for a human being to deliver the news completely without opinion. I so. think the internet has also made us start to question the value of that pose of objectivity. I mean, that is to say, there yeah. has to be a spectrum. I mean, you know, everyone shouldn't always be ranting on one oh, yeah, poll yeah, or yeah. the other all the time, but more transparency about where people and organizations and are coming by from. By the way, I yeah. think that, I, I get worried that it's so fragmented that people only watch MSNBC, people only watch Fox, right. people only read Drudge, people only, you know, listen to NPR. Which is everyone's right, but the problem is, is that then you turn on BBC News and you're like, what? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. I mean, this is, it is commerce, right? Right. And different opinions are really important. So in my other note on Trump, which no one wants to admit, is that <laughs> when we all watched his acceptance speeches as entertainment, right? there were plenty of times that we kind of nodded along. And we don't want to admit that, and it's not the hateful stuff, but the cheerleading high school football coach that makes Trump appealing is appealing. He's really good at that, like, if you're my bro, then 
I'll go the mile for you. You know, we're together, like, we're great, and you're great, you know? And there's also this game of telephone that occurs in the conversation about Trump. Calling him a racist. All he has to do is speak and not be racist. And it discredits that argument. Right. It's like putting labels on someone that you disagree with. I mean, I don't want to say that it's hyperbolic, but it's like saying that he's unqualified to be president is different than saying he's a monster. Sure. If you say he's a monster and people watch him and he's not a monster, it discredits your argument. And so I also think that discrediting these people that do support him, look, I'm from Indiana. I live (laughs) in Manhattan. I've auditioned for shows in LA that portray the Midwest and small town America in an insulting way. So I understand the mentality of the anti-elitism. I understand it. I understand that, you know, people saying that people that uh, believe in God are idiots. I find that hurtful. Even if someone doesn't go to church, their grandpa does. Right. So you're attacking my grandpa? That's right. So then I'm not on your team. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's no, like- I, I want to go, go there for a second. Like I, cause, yeah, because my grandmother, my mom's mother was religious. They were, they're Italian, Roman yeah. Catholic. Um, my mom, religious. And my dad's side, atheist, yeah. humanist Jews. Yeah. Um, but my grandmother, uh, my mom's mother, I would have conver- long conversations with her about her beliefs. And But I realized in myself that, like, over time since then, you know, having lived in New York all these years, I've grown more and more. I, I mean, I don't think I'd be coming out on social media saying disparaging and stupid things about the Midwest, but I've become more and more alienated from the idea of, religious people and what you said is a it's kind of a wake up call like to think about you know yeah i mean it's it's a form of bigotry right right and we all have different shades of it like you know yeah we we all have sexism too it's like we can be the most liberal guy and there's still sexist thoughts you right. know what i mean it's like we don't we don't have it figured out i think we should hear someone out you know the people that support trump are not idiots. They're not. I mean, some of them may be, but... No, so. but but wait a minute. What is an idiot? <laughs> well, that's what... It, yeah, right, right. Right? What is an idiot? So... No, that's a very... That's, it's like... I was joking, but you're but totally right. But from our viewpoint, <laughs> you know, being New Yorkers, and probably... I don't know if you grew up in New York, but like... D.C., outside New York, of D.C., but East Coast. But, you know, yeah. I've been in New York for 25 years. Trump has been in newspapers for 25 years. Yeah, yeah. And part of... You know, what I understand of America, the business mentality, Trump makes all the sense in the world. Sure. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, he yeah. seems he's successful. He's, he yeah, does I mean, you know, big, I mean, know that, you I know, know there's New York Times articles that are like, by the way, he's not. Right, right. But, but, but yeah, on the surface. But what I'm saying is facts or perception aside, it has to be a dialogue because. It's like we're constantly being manipulated to buy cereal or, or <laughs> you know, support this or that. I just think that, like, you know, the Trump-Elizabeth Warren Twitter war is like, I mean, I admire part of 
it, but I also think, is that productive? And by the way, I also sit there and then I question that and I go, maybe we need to do every resource in the world. <laughs> and maybe she's doing the best service. But I also feel like I don't know if the Twitter dialogue is the platform. I mean, by the way, can I also bring up something? Of course you can, yeah. So this is awesome. I have five young children. My, my oldest is 12. They hate Trump. They hate him. <laughs> Not from anything him. you've said, I guess. Not from anything I've said. Yeah. But, you know, they've had discussions, you know, during the primaries, like, are we Bernie people or are we Hillary people? And I'd have a discussion with them about it. And it's interesting as a parent to see where did they get that? Where did they get that? Right. Some of it is seeing vines where people are making fun of Trump, I think. Okay. But, and it, it makes me nervous because it's just like, there's this impressionable side and then there is this human resistance to being told what to do. So right. it's like, when I was a kid, Sylvester Stallone was the biggest thing in the world. And then collectively, we decided that we didn't like him at all. <laughs> and that happened with Anne Hathaway for no reason at all. People just decided, hey, everyone, we're done. She's not cool anymore. Yeah. For no reason at all. I don't know. Maybe there was some reason, but it's just so like the group mentality that I see my children who are very bright and, you know, they, they know that Trump wants to build a wall and that he right. said disparaging things about immigrants and stuff like that. But, like, it makes me, it just, it, it worries me how impressionable we are. I know, I know it was a trip for me when I realized, you know, at some point in high school that, like, the alienated all-black clothing goth look that I had cultivated was actually totally conformist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Within my alienated subculture, you know, which I thought was so radical and fighting the man and whatever. Like, well, here's, here's yeah. an interesting <laughs> thing. It's like, you know, I'm this kind of every man, right? And sure. my outfit in doing stand-up, I wanted to be very plain, not have uh, draw any attention. I had friends that were dressing like rock stars. I had friends that were embracing the latest trends. I was always jeans and a shirt, and I gave myself credit for not doing anything, but that in not choosing, I was making a choice. That's a look, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like you can't, you are participating by not participating. Right. You know, now they call it normcore or whatever, but <laughs> it's just like, you can't dodge it. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. But at least we can be maybe aware of it. Yeah. Or try. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's see what the next one yes. is that we have. Cool. We that we we got pretty deep into that one. Um, this is Dan Pontefract, Future of Work Envisioner, and it is called Forget Work Life Balance, Achieve Work Life Integration by Finding Purpose. Well, that's interesting, especially since your work integrates yeah. your life. Okay. Cool. Let's see. Famous Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, to be that self which one truly is, is something to first think about when you're trying to figure out your own personal purpose. So the three questions I want you to think about are as follows. What are you about? The second one is, who am I? Who am I trying to be? And then the last question is how? How am I gonna show up each and every day 
in this life of mine. Once you begin defining, deciding, and developing your what, your who, and your how, at the end of the day, that's going to create a pathway to purpose. Purpose is not given to you. Purpose is defined and decided and developed by you. Now, ostensibly, we all have to work somewhere. And so what you're trying to do is to match as best possible that defined sense of self with an organization that ideally has as close a match to that defined sense of self. So you're looking for an organization that also has defined itself and ultimately both you and the organization are then in the sweet spot. What I enjoyed about what that guy, that guy. Dan, uh, uh, Dan Pontefract, yeah. What I enjoyed what he said, which is something that informs me as a father and also as, you know, a comedian and a human being is I have such gratitude for the fact that what I do for a living is something I enjoy. Right. So it's interesting. I thought that video was going to be more about like love what you do and but I have such gratitude for having the occupation that I like. Right and having a, a clarity of the point of view of not only my comedy, but what kind of ideas I'm presenting. Right. Which leads to this other thing, which is, it's an imperfect idea, but as a comedian, again, I believe people do what they want. There's no incredible calculation in stand-up comedy. But there is something about bringing light to the world versus bringing darkness. Sure. Meaning we all have friends and we all have times where we bitch and moan or we have a friend who's very bitchy and <laughs> is mean and we laugh, but afterwards there's a bit of a hangover associated with it. Yeah. There's a nickiness. Yeah. Now, when you bring light in a creative endeavor, it becomes evergreen. So right. in other words complaining about something is never as potent as an observation which is universal to the human experience right so of someone, course and, and to, yeah. to put an asterisk to that yeah. i mean you know in the case of say woody allen's early stand-up or, or you exactly. know he, he could complain but in such a precise and observational way that it did become universal. and by the way richard pryor <laughs> was very much doing that. Right. It's why, but the thing is, is that it's also a different thing, but topical comedy, say a monologue joke versus like a Mitch Hedberg joke. Right. Mitch Hedberg jokes are going to be around in 20 years, whereas we don't remember Letterman or Leno's monologue jokes. Right. And so the insight of an observational joke or, or something about the human experience or Richard Pryor revealing aspects of his insecurities is bringing light. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so that's, you know, when he talks about purpose, it's something that I remember I had, this is back when I had like a VHS of a tape and I gave it to someone of my stand-up 20 years ago. And the guy said, it's funny, but it's a little mean. It's mean huh. to models. Interesting. And it was mean to 
to models. And so... You were taking kind of like an easy road there, like yeah. just I mean, it's, yeah, at that moment. It's similar to how um, you might look at jokes that were funny in the 90s and be like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty mean to midgets, or that's pretty <laughs> mean to this person or whatever. Why would they do that? Yeah. You know, like, put-down humor is the easiest, most accessible thing but it's very base. It's very simple. Yeah. And by the way, there can be camaraderie with it. You with your friends, you give each other shit. Sure. It's very fun. Right. But it's almost kind of a sarcastic take on insults. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. There's right. some meta-awareness right. that you guys are all screwing it's around. It's like we're all friends right. here, and right. I'm making fun of you <laughs> for this. But me identifying that... I have knowledge of you, right. and I know that you know that I'm making fun of this. And that you're going to take it well and not be right. hurt, and so on, yeah. And so, the, the reason I bring up those jokes where I was making fun of the model, and it doesn't have to be perfect, is that he was right. He was right. I was bagging on models, and I call it kind of us and them, right. which is not different from a Polish joke. It, it goes back, you know, it, 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 yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking that, like, the bringing of light, in, because it's a subtle thing. It's not always obvious unless you sort of know what you're looking to feel from right, it. But right. like, you know, because for example, there were plenty of people in America who freaked out when The Simpsons came out. Like, oh yeah. my God, it's destroying American values, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. But the fact is that The Simpsons was nothing but love for humanity as Absolutely. a whole. Like, and, and I think that that's, you know, also going back to what we were saying earlier to bring this full circle before we kind of close it up to having dialogue with people who think differently from you, like about yeah. Trump, bringing light into the world is about having some sense of the bigger picture and belonging to it as opposed right. to trying Yeah, and I think like. even even um, when we shoot, you know, like Seinfeld's show, like they, they were like, the only rule is no hugs, which okay. is great, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's just like a clumsy theatrical device. People hug, you know, it's, right. I get it. But that being said, when Jeannie and I do our show, and actually our DP, Niels Alpert, who is great, we have these conversations of where is the love in this moment or in this scene or in this episode? Because as human beings, even someone you have a contentious relationship with, right. there is something there. Like my character and Michael Ian Black's character, right. very much... There is, but they love each other because of the sarcastic barbs right. that they throw at each other. It's a very, There's something holding them together yes, there. But I think that's a very important element. Things that you, that we, like the show Seinfeld or The Simpsons, the reason we like that is, and even all in the family, they're in the element, there is this, you know, meathead and Archie Bunker there is an affection there, and there's a patience behind that, which spoke volumes to that generation, right? Yeah, which is what family can do, right? Because right. nobody is saying, I mean, unless somebody says, screw you forever and yeah. moves out, like nobody's saying that in all which in the family. Which is the Irish way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like in all in the family, you're trapped, you know? Like you're trapped. You're there, so you gotta deal with these folks. Which is, you know, it's just an exaggerated, example of what happens in every family, right? Right, which 
potentially, ideally, is a microcosm of understanding as ultimately as opposed to misunderstanding. Right. You know? right. As long as nobody says, forget you forever. <laughs> right. Which is, by the way, in some ways, even saying that to someone is expressing <laughs> that they're important to you. Right. You know what I mean? Well said. Like, yeah. if you want to be a real jerk, just leave. <laughs> right. I mean, this is that's what the pathological side of my brain where I'm like, you, you know, you want to make a statement. Just, I mean, that's, look, there's like the joke. Uh, my friend Tom Shalhoub has this joke where it's like, Italians will argue and make up like five times during a meal. And the Irish Catholics will like carry a simple grudge to a funeral, right? They're like, oh, I'll forgive you at the funeral, you know? So. Jim Gaffigan, this has been great. Thank you oh, so thank much you. for spending this thank time you. on Think Again. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been fun. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Next week, it's 4th of July weekend. I hope you all have exciting plans that don't involve sitting in traffic for very long. We have a really great episode coming up uh, on Saturday, but you can, of course, wait until Monday or Tuesday to listen if you're uh, having a great time with your family. It's Sean Willents. He's a Princeton historian, uh, the author of a new book about partisanship in America, which apparently has been with us forever, and he argues that it's actually good for the American people, which is definitely an interesting perspective. It's a really, really good conversation. Sean is also the official historian of Bob Dylan for his website. For Chicago fans of the show or anyone near Chicago, I want to let you know that on July 6th, I'll be giving a free talk uh, at Podcast Movement, which is a podcasting conference. It's a PMX talk, which is build as a TED-like talk for the podcasting community. Uh, I'm going to be talking about my experience uh, in developing the show and learning to work with and talk with all of these fascinating guests. It's going to be at around 11.25 a.m. on Wednesday, July 6th. I hope to see you then. Check out Podcast Movement PMX Talks on Google.